Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world. That ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Realm presents Book Burners, Season 2, Episode 5. One. I don't like it, Manchu said. Asante sighed. We've been over this before, and we'll go over it again. I suspect we will, Asante said. Asante and Manchu sat across from each other at her desk in the center of the restored black archives. Her acolyte, she was sure, could hear their voices rising. She watched as Manchu took a deep breath, calming himself down, collecting his thoughts. But they were arguing about magic, in a way, about the mission. And Asante knew how personal it was for Manchu. He blamed himself for destroying his hometown, as she'd known soon after meeting him. It had driven him away from magic, toward the society. She wondered if she would ever force Manchu to the point where he would lose himself in the heat of the argument, and say something he couldn't take back. She wondered if she, too, would ever reach that point. She made herself a promise right then that she would do everything she could to prevent that from happening, that she would always try to back off, to remind herself that she cared too much about Manchu and the rest of the team to create a rift between them. There is a fundamental problem with the society using magic to fight magic, Manchu said. Team One uses magic all the time, Asante said, and so do we. She gestured toward the orb. The manual she and her acolytes were using to decipher it was right in front of her. Menchu had interrupted her mid-paragraph, and she ran her hands again over the characters on the page. Her initial excitement at its discovery had led to a nagging frustration, as the manual had proven to be, well, hard to use. Should I have expected otherwise, she wondered. No, but still, there she was, a polyglot, an expert in her field, in possession of one of the best libraries about magic in the world, and still far too much of the knowledge contained in this book was out of reach. She wanted to call her dissertation advisor, but he was long gone. She missed him. She wanted to contact Perry as she thought he might know something, but was unsure even how to reach him. The orb is different, Manchu said. Is it? It seems from this book that it can do far more than we ever thought it could. It was built for us to use. Manchu sighed again. Arguing with you point for point about this is a frustrating exercise, he said, when all I am really saying is that I disagree with you on a general principle about the reason for the society's existence, its mission. Until very recently, I thought you accepted that mission. I do accept it. Then what has changed? Manchu asked. 
Now it was Asante's turn to pause. What indeed? The hand got too close, she said. That was a once-in-a-lifetime occurrence, Menchu answered. It will not happen again on our watch. How can you be so certain? When was the last time a demon was in the Vatican? I don't think that's the right way to think about it, Asante said. You don't hear the chatter like Liam and I do. There are rumors that the balance is shifting, that bigger things are coming, and I don't think we're prepared. And you think experimenting with magic will change that? Do you have any better ideas? No, Menchu said, but that's irrelevant. It's not necessary for us to have better ideas. It's necessary for us to contain magic. I know that, Asante said. Please, no, I know that. Manchu paused again. Just tell me, he said, that you are doing this because you really think it will make our work better. Not because you are just following some personal impulse. That is not what I am doing, Asante said. But I've seen it in you before, Manchu said. Do not deny that it's there. It's there, Asante said. It is, which was when she saw her opening. She sharpened her tone, moved in to slit this argument's throat. But I would never jeopardize you or anyone on Team 3 or anyone here at the Vatican for a passion project. I thought you knew me better and had more respect for me than to suggest that. She watched with a little satisfaction as Manchu's expression softened, became conciliatory. I didn't mean to suggest that, he said. I'm sorry. It's okay, Asante said. And I know this conversation isn't over. For now, I'm just asking you to trust me. I do, he said. All right, then let me get back to work. She returned to her book, shook her head. Manchu was right. The orb was a puzzle to fix, a problem to solve, and it let her lean into the curiosity that had brought her to study magic in the first place, that had brought her to the Vatican. She wanted to know how it worked. And the visit behind Team Four's door had put another thought in her head, that she had to find out just what might have happened to them. It occurred to her that the official statement on Team Four, that they had been excommunicated, removed from the church, did not, in fact, suggest that the team had been destroyed. There was no record of its members being killed. They just vanished. Which could, of course, mean that they'd been executed. Maybe their bones were rotting underneath a new apartment complex somewhere or scattered on the bottom of the Mediterranean. But excommunication could also mean that they had left, that other people, descendants, disciples, were carrying on their work, which meant someone out there might know what she wanted to know, how to do more with the orb, how to use it better, how to use magic better. Dr. Asante? Her assistant Francis's voice. Asante hadn't heard her approach the desk. Yes? Francis walked up to her desk from the stacks. She was holding a long, open envelope. You know what we were talking about the other day, about reorganizing the vaults? Asante nodded. That was the code phrase she'd already developed with Francis for the kind of research her superiors might frown upon. Yes, she said. Have you ever heard of the Thaumatological Symposium? Only a little, Asante said. An academic conference about magic it seems to be mostly fringe anthropologists and folklorists with a smattering of amateur cryptozoologists. We've never been invited, and it's invitation only. Well, I seem to have an invite to this year's conference in Russia. They must not know where you work. Not yet. Benefits of having just taken the job. Any chance you can get Liam and me on your invite? It does say I'm allowed to bring guests. Well, register us and see what happens. The paperwork arrived the next week. 
Plane tickets were purchased, car arrangements made. Asante packed her bags with mounting excitement. She could sense that Manchu was still a little dissatisfied with the way their argument had ended. He seemed to bristle a little when she told him where she was going and whom she was taking. He really didn't want her to go. She ignored him. Two. The three representatives from the Vatican to the Thaumatological Symposium drove six hours southeast from Moscow, down a highway that was lined with what seemed like endless trees. Liam, behind the steering wheel, kept trying to make conversation. Asante was game for a while, but after an hour or two, she felt that maybe they'd run out of things to say for the time being. She remembered why she'd become a librarian in the first place. It wasn't that she didn't like Liam, or people in general. She was sociable enough, she thought. She loved parties. But there was something to the silence, too, to just looking out the window. She'd never been to Russia before. She could ask Liam what his recent favorite book on tape was anytime. She also found that she wasn't particularly interested in Liam's apparently quite extensive knowledge of Russian dashcam accident videos on YouTube. Soon enough, though, he moved on to talking about something else. She noticed Francis trying to keep up with Liam for maybe 45 minutes, until she too fell into silence in the back seat, then into slumber. It took Liam a couple minutes to notice. Their exit put them on a smaller road through a town that looked like it had been spared communism, or perhaps it was too small for communism to bother. Then they passed through farmland, small low fields behind houses built for winter, chickens in tiny enclosures, here and there a few sheep, a few cows. A large electric fence rose to their left and kept running alongside the road for a good 30 seconds until they reached a metal archway with the name of the hotel in curved Cyrillic letters. From the road, they could see only the driveway rising and falling with the land over a small hill. They followed it and descended into a rolling valley of grassland dotted with trees. In the middle of it rose an enormous complex of buildings composed of three intersecting rectangles, the scales of which were hard to grasp. There was nothing near it but more grassland and a sprawling parking lot. At first, the building looked windowless, until they got closer and saw that it was almost all windows, tinted a shade of dark brown. It'll be nice and cheery in there, Liam said. Francis chuckled. Good, Asante thought. She's awake. A valet waited at the entrance to the resort's main building to take their car. The doors slid aside for them to enter. The people bustling inside filled the enormous lobby, the walls of which were painted just the right color to absorb cigarette smoke. A tang hit their nostrils, like the smell of a used furniture store. The man who checked them in gave them a winning smile and a few pairs of old keys. They moved over to the check-in table, where a line of people shouted their own names and waited for their programs. The back of a head in front of them reminded Asante of someone she knew, but before she could pin down the resemblance, someone taller blocked her view. Behind the check-in table, the staff looked worried. The woman who put down her cell phone to take their names, Yolanda, a conference organizer, according to her own name tag, frowned when she saw the organization they represented. She picked up her cell phone again and barked orders into it as she retrieved their paperwork. Just a moment, she said in English with an accent Asante couldn't identify. She rose and vanished into the room just behind them and came back with a man in a rumpled green suit whose slouch couldn't disguise how tall and broad he was. He looked like a lumberjack who was ashamed of himself, Asante thought. He extended his hand. 
I am Carpos Halmi, he said with half-lidded eyes. He attempted a smile, but couldn't quite manage it. He seemed strung out between anxiety and exhaustion. Welcome to the Tomological Symposium. I wish I could say it was a pleasure to at last meet representatives from the Vatican, but it is not. I must tell you, Dr. Haddad, that if we had known the identity of your new employers, we would never have extended an invitation to you. And it is only through regrettable organizational oversight that we didn't bar your guests. You aren't here to shut us down, are you? Liam laughed. Capo shrugged. I'm not joking, Capo said. No, no, Asante said. We're here to attend the conference, just like everyone else. I hope I can believe you. Capos nodded. He produced three sets of forms. You will need to sign these as first-time participants. What are they? Asante said. The, uh, the first set of papers is a confidentiality agreement, promising that you will not discuss anything that happens here beyond trivial matters outside the conference itself. What do trivial matters entail? Capo sighed. That is why the agreement is so long. It gets longer every year. If you care to read it, you can, but suffice it to say that defining what is trivial and what is not at this conference is still a matter of some debate, though it's best to proceed with caution. I take it you're not going to check us in unless we sign this, Asante said. Everyone has to sign them, Capo said, gesturing to a large stack of forms on a table behind him. That and the next form, which is a waiver. Francis was already halfway through that one. You know, I went skydiving once, and the waiver was shorter than this one. This form also gets longer every year, Capos said. Liam just gave Capos a long stare. Look, Capos said, I don't have to tell you that the very subject we are discussing at this conference is secret and dangerous. Your own large organization does not even publicly recognize your team's existence. For my part, I am concerned with the continued success of the conference, so legal considerations must be accounted for. As long as we are speaking candidly, I should tell you that many conference participants were not pleased to learn that you are attending this year. And I have had to be very diplomatic in assuring them that you're not here on a witch hunt, Liam said. I was looking for a better term, Capo said. There's a better term, Liam said. Drop it, Asante said. Let's just sign in already. Thank you, Capo said. He seemed less anxious, which only made him look more exhausted. I sincerely hope that you enjoy the conference. I heard an expression once that the purpose of a conference is to have two new ideas and meet two new people. I hope that turns out to be true for you. Indeed, Asante said. In front of the podium in a small conference room, a man in a brown suit demonstrated how he'd learned to float his pen. And there it was, suspended in the air in front of him. This magic is real, he said. It took me a very long time to learn how to do it. He extended his hand palm upward below the pen, clearly in position to let the pen fall into it. He released the pen and somehow dropped it anyway. Then he passed around photocopies of pictures he'd taken of his failed attempts. Exploded pens, melted pens, a pen that just wouldn't write anymore. He had instantaneously dried up all the ink. The demonstrator crawled into the particulars of the effects of his experiments on the pens and in controlling the magic by keeping it small, making all kinds of suppositions about the nature of magic from them. At one point, he caught Asante's eye, gave her a wary, hopeful glance. She couldn't decide if he was trying to impress her or hoping she wouldn't bust him. It was all so quaint. It made Asante realize that the demonstrations at this conference weren't going to be where the action was. 
At the presentation she went to next, Professor Izquierdo, an older scholar from a university in Mexico City, dressed in a plaid shirt and suspenders, began a discourse about the history of magic in the world. He was an anthropologist, and from the caustic asides he gave during his talk, it was clear that the academic pursuits that brought him to this conference had probably also sidetracked his career to the point of near ruination. He explained, with a small grin on his face, that he'd been given tenure a couple decades ago in a move the department head and deans of the university now regretted. Asante liked him right away. There are many, Izquierdo said in an acid tone, who say there is nothing to these fairy stories we find, that there is no knowledge about the world to be gained. They have no idea, do they? The crowd gave him an appreciative chuckle. He continued, I would like to talk about the stories of places that have disappeared, he said. We have many in the folklore of the world, which we all know well. Mu, Atlantis, Sodom and Gomorrah, Is, Brigadoon. He counted them on his fingers, got a laugh from the last one, which he seemed to like. And that is to say nothing of the dozens of actual cities archaeologists have found across the globe. Cities that seem thriving, if not advanced, for their time. Abandoned for reasons we still cannot fathom. I am not suggesting that the cities in the jungle of the Yucatan Peninsula were abandoned due to magic. Earthly factors are likely enough to explain it. What I am suggesting, however, is that these stories have some allure and pull their power from the tales at the fringes of our understanding of history that may well be due to magic. And that is indeed why they are at the fringes of our understanding. You have all heard of the Celtic Otherworld, yes? Uh, the place where magical creatures live and issue from. The place where the physical and social rules of this world are bent and examined. I would argue that not only is that place real, though it may be beyond our mental powers to comprehend it, but that a few people in the course of history have managed to use magic to create such places. Some by accident, some on purpose. Asante leaned forward in her seat. She sensed, however, that she was the only one who'd been pulled in. Even this audience was beginning to think that maybe this presenter was taking things a little far. But Asante didn't think so. To her, this cranky old professor was speaking her language. She knew enough herself to tell that he was drawing from a depth of knowledge few people she'd met so far at the conference had. Some of the younger academics here seemed to be playing around a little. Izquierdo wasn't. He looked out over the handful of people seated before him and changed the direction of his talk. Asante was disappointed. This is one of my two new people, she thought. She waited until the talk was over and the room was emptying out to approach him. Hello, she said. I'm, I know who you are, Izquierdo said. Pleased to meet you. He said this with a great deal of formality, Asante noticed. I have a question about something you said early in your talk she said, about people being able to create the other worlds we see in mythology. Yes, he said. Do you have any evidence that this may have happened? Evidence of magic, as you know, is very hard to come by. What about evidence that someone was planning to carry it out? Is something someone may have written down? The professor fidgeted. I must ask, he said. Is this an inquiry or an interrogation? I'm just asking a question, Asante said. No one from the Vatican just asks questions, Izquierdo said. Forgive me, uh, but I'm not comfortable talking about my work with you. We signed confidentiality agreements, just like you did. I wish I had more faith that you would consider yourself bound by that. What can I do to convince you to trust me, Asante said. 
Tell me what you're planning on using the information for, the professor said, and I'll decide then whether to tell you what I know. Masanti hesitated. There, the professor said. It's just as I thought. I'm not trying to hide anything from you. It's that I don't know enough yet to give you a good answer. Then tell me this, the professor said. This conference has been held for decades, and the Societis Librorum Occutorum has never attended, much to the collective relief of participants. In the early years, we waited for you to show up and take us away. That's not what we do, Asante said. In effect, it is very much what you do. Where the society appears, magic ceases, and the people involved do not tend to reappear. Would you dispute that? I can't, no, Asante said. So you can understand just how nervous we all became when we learned you and your colleagues were coming at last. We noticed that you're not presenting anything, and you haven't rounded us all up yet. So tell me, why are you here? Are you on a scouting mission, uh, determining the level of threat before you're sending your hit squad? I'm here to learn, Asante said. What could we teach you that you don't already know? You are sitting on the largest repository of magical items in the world. Asante looked away. Iskirdo narrowed his eyes. Ah, he said, I see. You don't know how to use them. All that power and no idea what to do with it. I never imagined I'd say something like this, but I almost feel sorry for you. Then help me, Asante said. All I have for you are a few questions. Sorry, Iskirdo said. Even if I have the answers, I'm not giving them to you. Not just like that. Why not? Because of the society you represent. You should know that. He started to gather up his papers. Best of luck finding someone more willing to talk to you. I'm sorry to be leaving this conversation on such bad terms. Asante said. If you really mean that, Iskierto said, and then you should think twice about who you're working for. Asante thought about that. Maybe you're right, she said. She extended her hand, and the professor shook it. We can imagine many potential futures. Some serve as inspiration, others, warnings. Wondery offers one possibility of the future in their new show, The Last City. The year is 2072, and the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image. But when she stumbles upon a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. You may not be on an elite team of investigators fighting the dangers of magic, but that doesn't mean you have to be defenseless when it comes to protecting your data online. Lucky for you, our partners at NordVPN know their way around the World Wide Web. 
VPN stands for Virtual Private Network, which creates a sort of encrypted tunnel while you're online, protecting your private data like bank details and passwords, so you can browse safely wherever you are in the world. In addition to providing you with a high level of security online, my favorite use of NordVPN is to virtually switch my location, so I can watch movies and shows that aren't currently available in my area. Plus, that way I can still access my favorite content when I'm traveling as well. I'm a fan of pretty much any British TV show, but they aren't always available in the US, so with NordVPN, I can virtually travel across the pond to enjoy my telly. NordVPN is also the fastest VPN in the world, and you can get all that speed, protection, and virtual locations for the price of just a coffee a month. To get the best discount off your NordVPN plan, go to nordvpn.com bookburners. Our link will also give you four extra months on the two-year plan. There's no risk with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. A quarter of the way through a presentation that had seemed promising, about rogue wizards, Frances couldn't shake the feeling that she'd ended up nowhere useful. She sighed. Could she leave without being rude? To the right, she'd disturbed three people. To the left, four. There was no way out. She focused her attention back on the screen. The presenter, a man in a gray suit and seemingly gray skin with thinning hair, was clutching at straws. Francis got the sense that the withered human was once a much greater scholar, still had a brilliant mind, but his time had passed decades ago, and he knew it. To attend this conference and spend the travel money he'd been given, the professor had cobbled together a half-hearted paper linking a few folktales in dubious ways. He asked someone in the back of the small room he'd been given to kill the lights, opened a laptop with a buzzing internal fan, and connected it to a projector. As he began to talk in a half-murmur, he projected the image of a manuscript onto the screen in front of him. He talked a little more, changed the image to a woodcut of a character, hunched over with long nails approaching a concerned woman with a baby. The image began to move. The lecturer's head was down, he was looking at his notes. As the professor kept talking, the creature with the long nails took a slow step toward the woman with the baby. Her mouth opened wider, heading into a silent scream. She was trying to break into a run, but the creature was too close. One long nailed hand rose, slashed downward, and divided woman and child into neat sections as though they were an apple pushed through a slicer. The slices dropped to the ground, and the creature bent over to eat them. Was that really necessary? Someone in the audience said. It was what, really necessary? The lecturer asked. He looked up at the screen. My God, he said. Now the creature turned toward the people sitting in the dark and began to walk toward them with purpose, getting bigger and bigger. A few people murmured, shifted in their seats. This isn't funny, said the same first voice. By now the presenter was frantic, mashing buttons on his laptop. The creature kept coming. Its face filled the screen, and when there was nothing left but the eye, the entire image seemed to bubble and melt. The screen itself started to smolder. With a pop, the bulb on the projector blew out, and the room was dark. Everyone started talking at once. Someone fumbled for the lights, and they came on. There was the professor, still in the middle of the room. A faint, curling wisp of smoke rose from the projector. Someone else must have called Kapos Halmi, because he arrived 30 seconds later. He told everyone the presentation was over and that everyone there could calmly leave. Most did. Francis lingered near the door. 
Kavos and the professor were talking in low voices, but she got the gist of what they were saying from the professor's gesticulations and Kavos's relative serenity. What happened? The professor said at last in a louder voice. Francis watched as Kapos shook his head, as though he'd been through this before. Francis looked toward the door where a thin man the color of ash was slipping out. Dinner was in a space that seemed more like an airplane hangar than a dining room. The sheer number of tables only drove home the fact that the resort had once been much busier. Francis found herself imagining hundreds of Communist Party elite and their families milling around the floor, joking and scheming, before they went horseback riding the next day. In her mind, all the men were nearly identical, subtle variations on Leonard Brezhnev. The participants at the conference were much more diverse, but there weren't nearly as many of them. They took up maybe a third of the vast space. At the other end of the room was a fleet of empty tables and chairs, sitting in the dark. They hadn't even bothered to turn on all the lights. Francis told Asante and Liam what she'd seen at the presentation. It all came out of her in a breathless rush. She was a little surprised at how calmly Asante and Liam received the information. Interesting, Asante said. Yeah, Liam said. So you've seen this kind of thing before, Francis said. Well, not exactly like this, Liam said. No magic thing is exactly like another. But something like it, yes, Asante said. It's good you told us. Hopefully that'll be as strange as it gets, Liam said. After dinner, Francis, Asante, and Liam walked through a glassed-in causeway, connecting one part of the resort to another. Liam looked out the windows, across the rolling land leading to the road and the forest beyond. He was pretty, she thought, physically. Shame he wasn't more interesting otherwise. Two hours of conversation on dash cam videos, honestly. Jesus, Liam said. What, Asante said. This place is really isolated, isn't it? Liam said. Maybe it'll be better when it gets darker, Francis said. Then you can pretend you're somewhere else. The dark will make it worse, Liam said. He had a point, Francis thought. The other conference goers were fanning out from the dining hall too, saying goodnight, heading back to their rooms, some heading to the bar. Care for a drink, either of you, Liam said. It's been a long day, Asante said. Francis, Liam said. I'm with Asante, she yawned. I could use some sleep. Liam nodded, patting his belly. Probably best anyway. Asante gave her a congenial hug. Liam gave her a salute. They went their separate ways. Somehow, they'd been booked in rooms far from one another, even though Francis had reserved their accommodations at the same time. She wondered if the conference organizers had done that on purpose. Maybe it was just another example of how the people here didn't trust them. She turned the corner to the hallway to her room and was reaching into her pocket for her key, when she heard a small snort. She stopped and looked down the hall, didn't see anything. Then she heard something else, a sharp intake of breath. She looked again toward the ceiling at the far end of the hall, and then she saw it. It was light gray, maybe the size of a dog, but with longer limbs and a smooth head with no eyes or nose, just a wide, thin mouth and large ears. It crouched in the upper corner of the hallway, two limbs against the wall, two limbs against the ceiling, like a spider spread out in its web. It seemed to be resting. Francis couldn't figure out how it was staying up there. She also wasn't sure if the creature had noticed her. Since it didn't have eyes, it was hard to tell. She gauged how far she had to go to reach the door of her room. 
She wasn't sure, but it seemed that whatever was up there on the ceiling was closer to it than she was, and she'd need time to unlock it in any case. And she was betting that whatever it was, it was pretty fast. Francis took a step backward. Another step? The thing lifted one long-fingered hand off the ceiling and rubbed its shiny scalp. She'd gone four steps when its head jerked forward. It started to unfold its limbs. It opened its mouth and a thin white vapor trailed toward the ceiling, as if it was drooling. She'd been noticed. Francis turned and started to run toward Asante's room, which she knew was closer than Liam's. She turned the corner, ran down the hall, and let herself look back. The thing chasing her had broken into a rollicking gallop, indifferent to which flat surface it was using, sometimes along the walls, sometimes on the ceiling, sometimes down to the floor, so that it followed an almost corkscrew pattern down the hall. Because Francis was not someone who tended to panic, a part of her brain stopped to consider that this was a pretty inefficient way for an animal to run. If it just picked a surface and ran straight, it would be much faster. Thank God it isn't, she thought to herself. She was within sight of Asante's room. Asante, open the door, she yelled. The door didn't move. Open it, open it now, Asante. The door opened and Asante's questioning face appeared. Then she saw what was happening and flung it wide, reaching out to Francis with her other hand. Francis reached back. The gray thing running behind her made a flying leap and caught Francis around the legs. They both hit the floor. The creature lunged and snapped at Francis's face. With some new strength Francis didn't know she had, she grabbed the creature, held off its mouth from making contact with her skin. She could keep it there for a couple seconds, not much more than that. She didn't need to. With a hiss, Asante rushed out of the doorway and gave the thing a swift kick in the head that knocked it off Francis, off its feet. It did a couple quick rolls in the hallway and righted itself. Asante took Francis's hand and Francis pulled herself up. Asante all but threw Francis into her room, then ran after her, slamming the door. Francis tumbled to the floor. Asante braced herself against the door. The thing smashed into it, smashed again. A few pounds with a hand, a few scratches, then a low whimper of hunger and disappointment. Neither of them moved for a full minute. There was no more sound. Francis got up. What was that? Asante said. You tell me, Francis said. Well, did you get a good look at it? No, Francis said. Asante glared for a moment in frustration. Then her face softened. I'm sorry, she said. Are you okay? I'm fine, Dr. Asante, Francis said. Thanks. I mean, up here, too, Asante said, tapping her temple. Are you okay? Yes. Good, Asante said. You're good and strong. Do you think Liam would know what it was? I don't know. Francis took a deep breath. I've never seen anything like that, she said. Well, Asante said, now you have a very small sense of what we're up against. You're staying here with me tonight. She picked up the cell phone sitting on her nightstand. Who are you calling? Francis asked. Liam? Then the rest of the team, she said. Whatever that was in the hallway, I have a feeling it was not alone. You are listening to Book Burners, created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away.
Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Book Burners is created by Max Gladstone and written by Max Gladstone, Margaret Dunlap, Amal El Motar. Murr Lafferty, Andrea Phillips, and Brian Francis Slattery. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yap. Performed by XE Sands. Audio production by Amanda Rose Smith, with additional editing by Corey Barton. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi, featuring Jody Redditch Ferber and mixed by Justin Morrell. Cover art by Annie Wu. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Asadolahi. Find more shows like Book Burners by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.